following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, today we're whoa, today we're really loud. <laughs> yeah. We're going to be looking in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 through 22. And as I shared uh, last week, if you were here, um, in, in our English Bibles, or in, in the way it got broken up, uh, chapter 10 is all one chapter. But really, there should be a major break between verses 18 and 19. And in the flow of thought in the book of Hebrews, uh, it's a major shift in... in um, uh, in his sermon, uh, the first uh, section up to there is primarily expository. In other words, he's explaining the Bible uh, from Old Testament passages and showing how Jesus uh, was spoken of, was pointed to from all that's in the Old Testament. Uh, and then in, in uh, verse 19, uh, through really the rest of the book, the focus is much more on our application of applying these truths, and uh, so it's much more, um, there's another X word I always forget, expositional and exhortation. There's the word, get those words confused, exhortation. So let's uh, read, uh, we're going to uh, just be looking at a few verses here, 19 through 22, so if you'll follow with me as I read. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Um, as, as we have seen, and as we've been looking through this passage, um, uh, through the book of Hebrews, we've seen that Hebrews is really uh, taking a, a look at the Old Testament and the temple and the sacrifices and the worship that Moses prescribed in Exodus and in Leviticus numbers. Um, but he's showing how all those things were never to be permanent solutions for sin. That what, uh, what it points to is something that's found and fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. Uh, and that the tabernacle itself or the temple is an illustration, and it, it's an illustration that, that speaks to us today. And one of the things that you know, illustrates many things, but one of those is that there are three kinds of people who come to this temple, this tabernacle to worship. And back in the Old Testament, um, there were kind of three levels of how you could worship God. And the first were, were, were basically the crowds of everyday people. And they would come to the tabernacle or to the temple, but really as far as they ever got was the altar. And they would go to the altar and they would bring their sacrifices, their lamb or their bull, uh, their goat, and they would offer an offering. And uh, many times it was a sin offering. And for those people, worship meant getting their sins covered. 
And for them, that was as far as they, as they went. That was good for them. And they could come and they could know that as they offered up this, this lamb or this goat, that its blood was atoning, that somehow it worked with God a forgiveness of sins. Um, but then there was a second group of people who could go past the altar, and that were the priests. The priests could actually, they also started at the altar. They would bring a sacrifice as well. But after they offered their sacrifice, they would go on to the next level, which was actually the, the bronze basin. And they would wash themselves. And then they could enter into the, the tabernacle. And, uh, and what they did there was they ministered to God. They served God there. And they took care of the lampstand. And they, they offered incense. They went and they took care of the table of showbread. They would pray. I'm sure they also dusted and cleaned and served in many different ways, right? So for them, it wasn't just about forgiveness, but it was forgiveness that led to serving. But for all of them, there was, there was a door past which they could not go, and that was the veil in the temple. We know that the tabernacle or the temple was divided into two compartments, and they could only go in the first compartment. And then there was a veil that hid from them the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, and the place where the glory and presence of God dwelled. They were not allowed to go past that curtain. And uh, only one time a year, with the third group, which happened to be a group of one, <laughs> the high priest alone would, would start at the altar, he would offer his sacrifice, he would take the blood, and he would go to the basin, and he would wash himself, and he would go through the outer chamber, and he would come to the curtain, and with his basin of blood in his hands, he would go through the curtain with that blood into the very presence of God the place where the ark and the mercy seat were, and there, uh, hovering above that, was the glory and presence of God. And he got to stand in God's presence. And the rest of the congregation would stand outside, and I'm sure, you know, I don't know what it would have been like, but I can just imagine the conversation of them thinking, wow, how cool for the high priest. Like, right now, he's just right in there with God. Like, they're like face to face, and they're, wouldn't that be cool to do that? But of course, for all of them, it was off limits. It was impossible. Um, and they knew, they knew something about the power of God's presence and the blessing that came with that. Because um, during the time of the judges, so between the time when Moses set up the tabernacle and then later when David built the temple, in between was a time of kind of wild cowboy days, right? Very chaotic. Uh, nobody really was leading and... Um, and nobody was really kind of making sure all the rules were followed about the tabernacle. And they really weren't supposed to be marching the, the ark around everywhere, but they did. Because they knew that the ark and the mercy seat was God's presence, and there was power with his presence. So when they went to battle, they're like, man, we're not going by ourselves. We're bringing God with us. Right? So they go into the tabernacle, and they take the ark, and they wheel it out, and they carry it off so that God went them, with them into battle. And of course, we know that didn't always uh, end real well. And at one time, the, 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 the ark actually got captured by the Philistines. Uh, but there was power with it, right? And the Philistines took the ark and they put it in the temple of their own god, Dagon. And in the morning, they got up. And where was Dagon? He was face down before the ark, right? Uh, no false gods could stand before the presence of a holy god. And they decided, well, this is kind of bad news, so they spread the ark around to other cities, and everywhere it went, it brought plagues and tumors. And finally, they sent it back to Israel. And of course, when it was in Israel, everywhere it went, it didn't bring plagues and tumors, but it brought primarily blessing. 
So they have the sense that with God's presence, there is power and there is blessing. Um, and, and, and because of that, in the Old Testament, we see this even with the Psalms and repeatedly, Old Testament saints longing for this presence of God. Uh, one of the most, one of my favorites is Psalm 63, where the psalmist writes, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. So this is the thinking of the Israelites. This was a good place to be. Being near to God's presence was, was worth it. Right? It was a place where there was power and blessing and glory. Um, and so... Uh, in, in the book of Hebrews, he's using these Old Testament images to teach us uh, and to show us that um, ultimately these things point not to those things, but they point to Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. And uh, the punchline of the book, the main message that he's getting to comes in these verses where he tells us, through the blood of Jesus, we can now what? Draw near to God. Right? We now have access into God's presence. The holy place is no longer off limits. Right? We as God's children have right of access to go right into the holy place. We don't have to be a priest. We don't have to be a high priest. Uh, well, actually, <laughs> New Testament theology, we are all priests. And as priests, we all have access to the very presence of God. Not in the earthly temple, but in the holy places in heaven. And, and, and again, not that heaven is a someplace, you know, at the edges of the universe. Okay? Heaven is, is, is here. Heaven can be in our hearts. So God's presence is near and accessible to us. And most significantly, there's, there's no barriers. There's no veil. There's no, nothing to keep us from coming into uh, his presence. But the reality is that in the church and with, with, with Christians, there are still three types of worshipers, it seems. There are still those worshipers who only go as far as the altar, Right? They come and they know that Jesus paid the penalty for their sin. And so like as we celebrate with communion, we come and we know that his blood washes us. But for these group, like the, the first group in the, in the tabernacle, that's all they really care about. It's like, yeah, Jesus paid for my sins. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be judged and sent you know, to eternity and God's wrath, so I'm good. That's all I'm interested in. Right? Um, and it's, it's these exact people that the author wrote the book. Right? He's warning them in these warning passages. Don't, don't stop there. Don't only go and only understand um, God's salvation in terms of forgiveness. In fact, he calls that the milk of the word. He says you've got to go back, past those basics onto the solid food and meat of the word uh, to maturity. Right? So he's warning people who, who, who stop only at the altar. Then there's a second group, and I think this would probably represent maybe a lot of us, uh, people who we, we, we come to the altar, we, we know that Jesus has forgiven and cleansed us, and because of that, we now have a heart for service. And so we enter the outer chamber, and there we know that we can serve God. And so we do that. We serve him, we come alongside him, and we minister to God uh, doing his work. Um, 
but, but, but it's important for us to understand that God did not save you, and this is going to be a revelation for some of you. God did not save you for the ultimate goal that you would serve Him. Let me say that again. God did not save you with the ultimate goal that you would serve Him. Right? Being a missionary, being a full-time Christian worker, serving God is not the end or final goal of God's salvation for your life. Uh, some of us, it would be hard to imagine anything else, right? Because that's kind of what our whole life is about. But there's more, right? There's more. And what happens oftentimes, if we don't understand the principle of going into maturity, of going past the veil, of coming to the final destination of living life in God's presence, service will become a burden to us. Too many people in full-time ministry are worn out and burned out, and doing ministry without joy or power has become a drudgery to them because... They haven't understood the final goal and purpose of Jesus' saving work. Um, They wrongly believe that uh, through their service, God will bless them. And I've been there many times, right? Where I thought, if I serve God, if I work for Him, He's going to give me everything I want. Well, God wants to bless you, but the basis of His blessing is not your serving Him. It's not you working for Him. Right? We, God, we, we will never, God will never be indebted to us. He's going to go, oh, wow, that was so cool what you did. Man, I owe you. God's never going to owe you. Right? His blessings are separate from our service. Um, and, and we can never deserve or earn his blessings. And so when we serve God, hoping that he will bless us, and then the blessing doesn't come, what happens is people get very bitter and disappointed. And they feel angry at God that they made sacrifices and they served Him and God didn't come through with His end of the bargain. The problem is they didn't really understand the way it works. But then there's a third group and the third group are those who have gone beyond the milk of the Word, gone beyond the the basics of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, who have gone beyond serving and who serve, but they serve now not as the final goal, but they know that the final goal, what this is really about, is living life continually in God's presence. We are to draw near to Him and live life with Him. Uh, And in that place, we experience joy and power. Uh, um, Our lives are transformed and our service takes on a whole new life and meaning and power. Uh, Like Dagon in the Old Testament, every enemy would fall powerless before us if we really knew how to live in God's presence. Uh, Every day of our life would be full of joy and blessing, and probably trials and problems too. But we'd have a power to overcome those things. And ultimately our life would bear great fruit for God's glory. So which one of these are you? Like, If you're really honest, right? which group are you in? First group, come to the cross, you know Jesus, you've accepted his salvation, and you know you've been washed and and cleansed by his blood. But you're happy just with that. Are you in the second group who's um, serving God uh, and working hard doing His work? Um, or are you one who, who lives in God's presence? Maybe you're like me and, and you didn't even know this was an option. Right? Nobody ever told you that the goal wasn't serving, that the goal is actually living God, in God's presence. 
Or maybe you've longed for this, but nobody's ever explained to you how it works. Well, the good news is today our author from Hebrews is going to tell us how we can live life moment by moment, day by day, drawing near to God in his presence. Um, that we can come into the holy places where God's glory and power dwells and we can live there with God. And it really is a pretty simple thing in some ways. Um, uh, he, he's, he lays out two simple things that, that we need to know or put into practice to, to draw near to God. First, we must have great confidence and faith in what God has already done to make it possible. So we're going to look at that. Okay, what God has done to make it possible. Secondly, um, we must understand the steps we must do on our part to draw near, uh, to go through the veil and enter the place where his glory and presence dwells. Uh, so first thing, uh, we must have confidence in what God has done. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Actually, he lays out two parallel clauses, both beginning with the word since. That's the first one. Since we have confidence. Second one, verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. These two since clauses spell out for us uh, what God's done to make it possible for us to live in his presence. Um, and the first thing is that we need to have this unwavering confidence in what God has already done. Right? What God has done to make it possible to accomplish for us life in his presence. Um, and so let's look at the first one here. Uh, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Okay, this is what God has done for us. Now, when you read it, uh, it may sound a little bit like something we do. He says, therefore, since we have confidence. And it makes it sound like it's up to us to have this confidence. And in some sense, that's true. Um, if we don't understand that this is the goal of salvation, we'll never pursue it, Right? If nobody ever tells us that we have to go past forgiveness, we have to go past serving, that, that the ultimate goal of the Christian life is to live in God's presence. If we don't know that, we, we'll never go there. We'll never pursue that. So in, in one sense, this understanding is important for us. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't pursue it. Um, and, and so that, that was my experience. I mean, I very much lived out those three phases. I remember when I first came to Christ... Uh, it was all about God's forgiveness. And I just was trying to mostly avoid hell and judgment. And so I experienced the cross. I experienced forgiveness. I experienced the altar. Uh, and shortly after that, I was so excited about God and I, I had this new love for God. I wanted to serve him. And so I poured my life into serving God in many different ways and God gave great opportunities. Uh, but nobody ever told me, this is not the end. Nobody ever mentioned me. I never, well, if they heard sermons, it just maybe I just didn't understand what they were saying. But uh, it was many, many years before I ever encountered this idea that the goal of the Christian life was to draw close to God and live in his presence. And I remember the first time this concept was ever introduced to me was reading uh, the book The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. And that's kind of the point of the book. He says, "Don't you know, this is, we pursue God. We pursue life in his presence. And it blew me away. And I couldn't believe that I had lived this long and never heard this. So we, we need to have this understanding. We need to have this as a goal that we're, we're shooting for. Uh, 
uh, otherwise we'll never pursue that. Um, and, and what we're to understand, what he tells us here, is that we're to understand that he has done everything, right? We have confidence in what? The blood of Jesus. And not confidence in our own ability, our own power, what we do. We have confidence in the blood of Jesus and what it has done to open the way for us. Um, he has done everything. Um, and, and specifically, the, the authors basically listed three things here that, that, that God has done to open up the way for us. And the first one is that he's given us access by the blood of Jesus. Uh, he, he is, he's really authorized access by the blood of Jesus. Um, the phrase, since we have confidence, is a little bit misleading. Um, the, the word confidence in English has a very subjective meaning. In other words, it's a feeling, right? Right now, how confident do you feel? Well, it depends on what we're talking about. If you, how many of you are confident that after church you're going to go eat lunch? Nobody's confident in that? I'm confident. I'm telling you right, right now, like, unless like Jesus comes back. Church is over. I'm going to go eat lunch. I have great confidence in that, in that right? I don't know what I'm going to eat, but I'm going to eat lunch. Um, now, if I say, how many of you are confident that if you jump out that window, you can fly? Probably not as confident, right? In fact, I'm pretty confident that that would end badly for me. Right? Um, for us, confidence is a feeling about something we, 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 we're sure will happen or, or won't happen. And it's usually based on our experience or, or on our level of practice, right? So we're talking about musical instruments. We can become more confident in playing that instrument as we practice and become more, become better at it, right? Um, some people, however, are just naturally confident. I, ha- I have a son-in-law I won't name, but his initials are Nate Ulrich. <laughs> and some of you know him. And he just like, he's confident no matter what. And like, if he can do it or not, it doesn't matter. He's just confident. This will work out, right? And I love giving him a hard time about that. It's really a shame he's not here because I would love to harass him about his confidence, right? And of course, people who are confident, they think they're optimistic. I just think they're not dealing with reality, right? They're not being optimistic. Because you can see how confident I am, right? Um, but that's not what the word confidence means here. Confidence in, in this, as he's using it here, is, has nothing to do with feeling. Right? It is not something we possess. In fact, the word could be translated to have boldness or to be authorized to do something. And I like that, I like that use of it. He says here, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have been authorized to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's really the sense or the meaning here. We have been authorized to enter the holy places where God dwells by the blood of Jesus. Uh, I like that picture of being authorized. That's funny. Every, I feel like every movie I've seen in the last, I don't know, year, uh, there's at least one scene where people need to gain access to some top secret room, right? That room has got all the magic Star Wars, you know, uh, Star Trek doors that whoosh and swoosh. And, and there's always some kind of scanning device that you have to go and you put your thumbprint, your eyeball, and you talk and you blow your nose and all kinds of stuff. Uh, take a DNA sample and everything. Um, and and the, the, the idea is that it needs to confirm that you are authorized to enter. Right? Access is restricted, and only people who are authorized, only people who have the right or permission 
uh, can open the door. So if you go and you pass all the scans and you prove you're the right person who's been authorized, the door opens. And that's the picture here. And of course, it's not just in movies, but now even on our phones. I gain access to my phone by scanning my thumbprint, right? Scary stuff. Because what this means now is if people want to rob you, they need two things, your phone and your thumb, (laughs) right? So we're going to all of a sudden be walking around people who have no thumbs, right? Because we've been robbed. I've been robbed, (laughs) right? (sighs) Maybe this is not such a good idea, right? Um, Well, this is a picture here. We, We have our access to God. The picture in the Old Testament and the tabernacle is that their access was restricted. There was a closed door. Right? And only the authorized people could enter, and it was the, it was the high priest. Nobody else could, could do it. But now we have, he says, a new and living way. We'll talk about it in a minute. Through his blood that gains us access into God's presence. Right? So now when we come to that scanner, uh, the door opens for us because we have been authorized, not by our own thumbprint or by our own eyeball scan, but by the blood of Jesus. Right? That's what opens the way for us. He did it when he died on the cross as we celebrated with communion this morning. He poured out his blood and it opened the way for us and gave us access to God's presence. So it has nothing to do with how confident we feel or don't feel. You may not feel at all that you are worthy. You may not feel at all that this will work. But it doesn't have anything to do with what you feel or how confident you are. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done and the effectiveness of his sacrifice. And that's why he spent the last four chapters talking about the effectiveness of Jesus, our great high priest, the incarnate Son of God. Uh, Second thing he talks about, first through his blood. Secondly, he says, um, verse 20, uh, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through with his flesh. Okay, it is a new and living way. We don't have a, a lot of time to talk about it, but basically he's been spending the last number of chapters saying the old covenant, the old system didn't work. And so God, by his will and purpose, has created a new and living way through the life and death and sacrifice of Jesus. And then through that way, he says, he has, he has opened a way through the tent, through the veil, that is, through Jesus' flesh. So the third thing is, is by Jesus' sacrifice. Right? His blood, by a new living way that God established that culminated in Jesus' own sacrifice of his own life, his own body, for us in our place. Uh, the picture here is, is that we, we need to go through this curtain or this veil. And for all time, that veil stood as the barrier that prevented people from accessing God. And he says, now... Jesus, through his body, through his flesh, through his death on the cross, has opened a way through the curtain. So he is now the door by which we pass through that curtain into Jesus, into God's presence, into the holy place. Right? Uh, Jesus said it in, um, in John. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father, but what? But through me, right? but by me. He is the, the true and living way, and it is by his sacrifice that we can walk through that, that veil. Right? The door is open. The way is opened. 
Right? There's no you know, detour sign, no road close sign, no do not enter. Right? Through Jesus, the way is open. And so the point of all this is that our access to God is, is made possible. It's accomplished fully and completely through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus. We have access to God through Jesus and through what he's done for us. And this is the ultimate thing that he came to die for. Yes, he died for your sins. And certainly, if he hadn't dealt with sin, we could not enter God's presence because he's a holy God. But he didn't die just to bring forgiveness. He died and gave his life so that you and I could live and be in God's presence continually. Because that's the first sense clause, right? Since we have this confidence uh, in what he has done through the blood of Jesus. Second thing, he says, verse 21, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. We're actually going to talk about uh, this more next week. Uh, He tells us really three results that come uh, through what Jesus did. Uh, Today we're looking at the privilege of being able to draw near. And next week we're going to look more at how that affects our relationships with each other. Um, But the point here is that Jesus is a great high priest over the house of God. Um, And the house of God is not the tabernacle, it's not the temple in Jerusalem, it's not the holy places in heaven. The house of God is right here. It's his church. It's the people of God. And Jesus is a high priest ministering, serving over his house. Um, And what that means is he is the mediator of a new covenant. And not only did he die to make it possible, but he serves continually to make sure it happens. He's ministering on our behalf, making sure that this works. Uh, Through the sending of his Holy Spirit, through leading us, he wants you to gain access to the Father's presence. And he's personally involved in in carrying out this mission in your life and in mine. Um, It it, it might look something like this. Imagine that you get invited to a very exclusive party hosted by the Prime Minister of Thailand. And it's going to be held at the Royal Palace. And uh, he says, you know, because you have loved Thai people so well and because of your work with Thai people... I want to honor you, and so I'm inviting you to this party. And you're kind of blown away. It's like, wow, this is going to be really cool. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't, I don't own the kind of clothes to go to that kind of party. So I go out and I go shopping, and we get fancy clothes and, and get all spiffed up, and we go to the royal palace, and we approach the big gate there. And standing at the entrance of the gate are some really mean-looking guards with big guns and scowls on their faces. And it's clear that you're not going to get past these guards. And you go up to him and you go, you know, I was invited to this party. <laughs> uh, can I go in? And they're like, mm, you know, and the little white guy in here or whatever. And they, they, they no, the door is closed, right? But then all of a sudden, comes through the door, you see the prime minister himself come. And he says, Tim, I've been looking for you. I'm glad you're here. And he shoves the guards out of the way and they all kind of bow and you know, get out of the way. And he ushers you in, right? And he makes sure that you get into the party and you're introduced to the right people and you are honored. That's what Jesus does as our great high priest. As uh, As we come near to God, as we come to that veil, that door, 
Uh, there are all kinds of voices telling us, you don't belong there. Right? Satan, the accuser, is telling us, you don't belong there. Maybe our own conscience, our own doubt accuses us, telling us, you don't belong there. Uh, maybe other people confirm that. You know, what a loser you are. What a sinner you are. Surely, life in God's presence isn't for you. Right? That's for spiritual people, and you're clearly not spiritual enough. But as we come to that door, as we draw near, Jesus is there to meet us. And as the great high priest, he ushers us in. On the basis of his blood, but also through his active ministry in our life, he makes sure right, that, that we have full access. He walks us step by step into the very presence of the Father. Um, Right, so that's point number one, big point number one, that we have confidence in what he has done. Second thing, we need to understand what we must do. Right? We have a part in this. God has done everything to make it possible, but it's still up to us to take the steps to draw near. Right? He says, he says, he doesn't say to us, sit back in your you know, recliner and this is just going to happen to you. No, he says what? He says, uh, verse, verse 22, So then, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Um, we must move toward God. If we want to draw near to Him, it is our part and our place to take steps toward Him. We must pursue relationship with Him. I mean, He's already pursued relationship with us. He's done everything. He has walked a thousand steps. But He asks us to make one. We must make that step. So what exactly what does that look like? Well, He gives us four things. I'm just going to touch on them briefly of what we must do. And the first thing is, is we draw near to God with a true heart. Draw near to God with a true heart. Drawing near to God is first and foremost a matter of our heart. Um, I live my life way too much in my brain, right? In my thoughts and in my thinking. And I think one of the downfalls or one of the struggles of the modern church is that we put so much energy in what we know, and, and, and this is not all bad. Like, I, I believe in good theology. And I believe we should develop good doctrine. We should understand Scripture. And in fact, the author of Hebrews also believes that. He's just spent the last ten chapters unpacking a lot of theology. But he's been instructing and informing our mind. Uh, but the problem is that as good as our theology is, it's not how we draw near to God. We do not draw near to God simply on the basis of what we know. We have to take what we know and we must take that truth and engage it with our heart if we are to draw near to God. Um, it's not enough just to have information. Right? We must act on it with our heart. 
And our heart is a very complicated thing, and I don't have time to go into all that the heart is, but I, here's a few things. It means that our heart must be a true heart. A true heart is a heart that's undivided. Like if we love the world and we love God, we cannot draw near to His presence. An undivided heart that puts away all the other loves that call for our affection so that we love God alone. And so the scripture talks about being a double-minded man and how that will not bring us near to God. A true heart is a heart that is honest. Like when we are divided, when we do have other loves, we don't pretend that we don't. Right? We are honest about those things with God and we confess and say, God, honestly, I, this is hard. And honestly, these things appeal to me. And honestly, sometimes I would rather have these things than you. Help me. We're honest about where we really are. We are honest about our failures and our sin. We are honest about our, that, that we do not deserve his presence. But we wrestle with those things honestly before God. A true heart is a heart that is loyal and loving. Right? We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, first of all. Right? That we... There's something of affection and passion in our heart. Um, you know, I, I think sometimes, and I wonder, if we pursued, imagine, okay, just think about how your relationship with God works. Like for me, it's a lot in my head, not very much in my heart, oftentimes about as hot and passionate as like you know, milk at room temperature, right? And what did Jesus say about the whole, you know, neither hot or cold thing? Not good, right? Okay, so imagine, imagine that when you were first courting or dating your, your spouse, if you're married, right? Or if you've ever dated, right? Like if you put the passion into that dating experience that you do with your, your, your life with God now, would you have ever gotten married, right? I don't know. Right? Sometimes our relationship with God is so passionless, so heartless, so empty of affection. Right? Imagine if your marriage worked this way. Um, you know, we come with our heart. There should be something of our affection and our passion in it. Uh, a true heart is also a devoted heart. It's loyal. It is devoted. It is committed to God and God alone, to obey Him and to follow Him. A true heart is one that is yielded and surrendered to God and we are obedient to Him. If we serve other things, if we refuse to obey Him, He does not have possession of our whole heart. We cannot draw near. We cannot live in his presence. Right? We, will, we will stop short. Right? So that's where it begins. We pursue God. We, we seek to draw near to him with our heart uh, and all that that means. And again, that's not to say that we should stop using our brains, that we should turn off thinking, that we should no longer study the word and develop good doctrine in, in sound theology. We should do that. But it should never just stop with mental exercise. Everything that we learn about God as truth from Scripture, we should engage with our heart, and it should become, um, it should become a response of our heart of confession or surrender or obedience or affection or devotion, right? not just empty truth. <clears throat> Second thing, uh, we... Uh, we draw near to God uh, with a true heart 
in the full assurance of faith. The full assurance of faith. Uh, when we speak of drawing near to God with our heart, it, it may, we may get the idea that this is all about feeling. And, we may, and you may have this experience like, yeah, I've tried to draw near to God. I mean, I really, I really want to be close to God and I think I'm close to God, but I don't ever feel anything. What am I doing wrong? Well, I'll tell you what. Drawing near to God is not about feeling. We should engage our heart and there should be a sense in which we have affection toward God. But being near Him may not feel like anything. Because right? it's not about feeling. Our feelings are much too unreliable and lie to us too much. Right? Uh, you do not measure your nearness to God based on how you feel about it. He says and said, no, we, we draw near to God on the basis of faith. Right? With the full assurance of faith. Uh, faith means believing something is absolutely true regardless of how we feel about it or how things appear. Okay, regardless of how we feel about it or how they appear. Uh, do any of you ever play uh, Weatherman? Of course, Ted was a Weatherman, so he doesn't actually play. He actually got paid to be a Weatherman, but for the rest of us, it's more like playing. And I play Weatherman a lot, and this is how it works for me. I want to do some kind of outing, go on a picnic or a hike or a bike ride. And so I'll dig out my phone and I'll pull up my weather app. And the weather app says there's a 90% chance of rain. But I don't believe my weather app because I go outside and I look up at the sky and all I see is blue sky. And I'm going, what do they know, right? They, they don't, the weather app can't see the sky, right? I can see the sky. And so I, be, so I decide, <coughs> weather app's stupid. I know better. Right? And so I get my picnic stuff together. We go out in the car. We unload everything. We set our picnic up. And as soon as we get the last thing set up, what happens? The sky instantly turns black. And thunder crashes and <laughs> down comes the rain. Right? We're scrambling, putting away all of our stuff, dashing back to the car, soaking wet. Right? Because I didn't trust. I, I based my observations on what I saw and what I felt. I did not have faith that some stupid phone could tell me what the weather's going to be. <laughs> How dumb is that, right? Well, that, do we do that with God? Right? He says to us, you have complete and full access into my presence. Jesus has done everything for you to come near to me. All you've got to do is walk there. All you have to do is enter into my presence. And we say, well, I don't feel that. I don't feel like that's what's happened. It must not be true. Right? Because we don't believe with absolute faith, with the full assurance of faith that what God said is true. Right? So we must do that. We must, uh, we must enter, dry into his presence with full assurance of faith that everything he said is exactly the way it is. Then we draw before our presence. When we seek God, regardless of how we feel, if we take those steps towards him, he meets us. And he draws us into his presence and in the depths of our soul we are united with him in oneness of communion and fellowship. We are with him. And he wants us to do life there with him all the time. Last, last things were kind of lumped together. Hearts sprinkled clean and bodies washed. Um, there is one thing that can break all this. Jesus has done everything. And we can draw into his presence anytime, anywhere. And we should live continually in that place. But there's one thing that can mess it up. 
And that is when we stumble into sin. Right? Um, 1 John uh, chapter 1 puts it this way. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Right? That's that place of drawing into his presence. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sometimes we sin. And the one thing that will break that fellowship is when we stumble. We sin. Right? And so what do we need? Well, we need our hearts sprinkled again with the blood of Jesus. We need our bodies washed with the cleansing work of Christ. First uh, John 1, nine. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And instantly we can be restored to perfect fellowship and communion with him. Uh, That's what it means to draw near to God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.